morning, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 26. Acts 3 and Acts 4, at least up to verse 31, go together. We have five points in the outline. Number one, the miracle. Acts 3, 1 to 11. Number two, the sermon of Peter. Acts 3, 12 to 26. Number three, the arrest of Peter and John. Acts 4, 1 to 4. Number four, the trial of Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. Acts 4, 5 to 22. Number five, the prayer of the church. Acts 4, 23 to 31. Now, I would like to think that we could cover the first two points this morning. So the first one is the miracle, the healing of the lame man, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Let's read it together to get it in front of us. I think we're going to have to turn that down a little. I'm getting a little groggy here. Is it still a little hot? Right, let's turn that down just a little more while we read Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man lame from his birth was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. And who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. Now, here's the circumstances of the healing. You notice it takes place at the temple. Uh, for many months, probably years after uh, Jesus died and the Holy Spirit came, the disciples frequented the temple. They did not frequent the synagogue, but they frequented the temple. And often they met in what was called the porch of Solomon. So here they were. They came to the temple at the uh, ninth hour, or is it the third hour? Ninth hour? Well, that would be three o'clock in the afternoon. The third hour was nine a.m. in the morning. Now at the third hour and uh, at the sixth hour and the twelfth hour, they had stated times of prayer, just as the Muslims do today. And they had those stated times of prayer at the third hour, which was 9 a.m., <clears throat> at the sixth hour, which was 12, 12. I never figured out whether that's 12 a.m. or 12 p.m. But let's say 12.01 p.m., then we'll be safe. And they had the stated hour of prayer at that time, and then they had stated hour of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which was the ninth hour. And they had what was called the evening and morning and evening sacrifice. The morning sacrifice was at 9 a.m., and the evening sacrifice was at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So Peter and John went up to the temple at this stated hour of prayer. There was carried there at the stated hour of prayers a man that was congenitally lame. He was lame from his mother's womb. He was lame from birth, and he was carried there at this time. Because all the people going into the temple for that stated hour of prayer would go right by this man. So they brought him up probably at 9 o'clock in the morning and then took him back home or perhaps left him there. They brought him up at this time at 3 o'clock in the afternoon so that all the people that were going into the temple were able to go by this man. He was probably put by a gate that was right next to the court of the Gentiles. Sometime you might get a Bible dictionary and look at the picture of the temple at that time. It was an outer court, and over on the eastern side was the porch of Solomon, way on the outside. Then secondly, you had the outer court, which was the court of the Gentiles. And Gentiles could go into this court, but not beyond, on threat of death if they went beyond it. Then secondly, they would go into what was called the court of the women. Then they'd go into what was called the court of the Israel, the court of the Jews, where only the Jewish men could go. The women could go beyond, the Jewish women go beyond the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women. 
But not beyond that. The man could go into the court of Israel. And then, of course, beyond that was that building, that small, uh, what we would call uh, in the Old Testament times, is called the tabernacle, for the holiest, for the holy, of, holy place and the holiest of all. So they spotted this man at a very, at a very um, expedient place, and he was there to beg off. And apparently, from the text, he had been doing this for many years. So up comes Peter and John. Naturally, he asked them for an alms, that is, for a gift. So, verse 4, Peter responds to him. Peter fastened his eyes upon him, but John said, look on us. Look on us. Now, that's where I get, look up here. See? <laughs> he says, look on us. Look on us. And he gave heed unto them. That is, the man listened to Peter and John, expecting to receive some money from them. Then said Peter, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up, stood and walked, and entered with him into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. That must have been quite some sight. Here's the man that the people that went into the temple knew very well. The people that came in the temple came in there every day. Came in there every day to worship God. And every day as they went in, they saw this man. They knew him well. For years, his friends, perhaps his parents, perhaps since the time he was a young boy, for years, this congenitally layman had been put at precisely the same spot. So the people that went in the temple knew him well. They knew exactly his condition. One day, after 3 o'clock in the afternoon, when this man was supernaturally healed, for the first time in their lives, they saw this man in the temple walking and leaping and praising God. Why do you think the Bible puts in there that he was leaping around? Because we're supposed to leap in the services? No. I think he wanted to put it in there, first of all, because the man was so happy. He was leaping around. He hadn't been able to exercise those limbs before this. He now could do it. So he's leaping around. I think the Bible put it in there also to indicate that this miracle, this was a miracle, supernatural. It wasn't a psychological factor. This man had been born lame from birth. It was not a psychological factor, and therefore it wasn't a psychological miracle. The man was healed. Notice about this healing that it was an impossible case. It was congenital. It was unexpected. It was instantaneous and immediate. It was complete, full restoration. It was notable. And it was affected by God's power and done by faith. And then look at verses 8 to 11, the consequences of this healing. Now, I'm moving through this quickly because I want to get to the sermon of Peter. Four consequences. First one, the man himself was filled with joy. Verse 8, he leaped up, stood and walked, walking and leaping and praising God. The man was filled with joy. He was saved, I believe. Secondly, God received the praise, verses 8 and 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. God received the praise. The end of verse 8, he was praising God. Third, here was a strong testimony to the gospel. This miracle authenticated the gospel. And fourth, the opposition was aroused. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. When this God around that this man had been healed, then began the opposition and the opposition from the Sadducees. 
Now, here was the miracle, no doubt about it. Let me take a minute and say something about miracles. Miracles are associated with Christianity. Christianity is associated with miracles. Now, many people don't believe in miracles. Many people attempt to explain miracles uh, by denying them or explaining them psychologically or by saying that they are a, a myth to convey certain truths to us. You know, Bruce Barton explained miracles, for example, the feeding of the 5,000. I suppose you've seen the book, The Man Nobody Knows, written by Bruce Barton, and the book Nobody Knows. And when it comes to the feeding of the 5,000, he explains it in naturalistic terms. He said that when that young lad took out those, those loaves and fishes from his little lunch pail, that that set an example. All the other men had been hiding their food. They didn't want to share it. Here was a little boy, very generously opened up his basket, brought it out in the open, opened it up, and was willing to share it with somebody else. And the consciousness, the conscience of those 5,000 men was stricken, so they slipped their little lunch pail out from hiding, and they opened up their lunch pail, and they shared with anybody in need their food. That's how he explained the miracle. How about the miracle of Jesus walking on the water? Well, said Bruce Barton, there was a heavy mist hanging over the Sea of Galilee at that time. The disciples were quite some distance from Jesus. When they looked out there, they thought that Jesus was walking on the water. As a matter of fact, he wasn't. It was simply heavy mist, and they made a mistake. And he went through all the New Testament explaining the, uh, the miracles in that fashion. Well, that won't do. That won't do. Uh, men saw that that wouldn't do, so they... Uh, have adopted a new technique, you know. Unbelief always finds some technique to explain these miracles. So the approach today that's popular and that dominates most theological seminaries is this approach. That the miracles in the New Testament are M-Y-T-H-S, they're myths. That is their convenient vehicles for teaching us a deeper truth. That's the approach of William Barclay. Um, he approaches, we're going to have to turn that heat on just a little again. You didn't, by any chance, get the light on that uh, air conditioner. <laughs> now, it's still on. We just see, we better put that up just a little again. Um, the approach today is, and it's a very popular approach, is the mythological approach. And it goes like this, and I'm going to take a minute and explain it because you're going to, you're going to probably come across it. You know, it's very strange that the average layman will sit in the pew of the church and often hear somebody preach, although it's not so dominant down here as it is in the North and Middle West and in California. They hear somebody preach and say that he believes in the virgin birth or in the bodily resurrection. And the layman says, you see, he believes in the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection, when he really doesn't believe in the virgin birth, in the bodily resurrection. We don't carry William Barclay's commentaries in our bookstore. I gave instructions several years ago not to carry them even though I have in my own personal library. William Barclay adopts the mythological approach to the miracles of Jesus. For example, the, turn, the example, the turning of water into wine in John chapter 2. Was that a miracle? Did that really happen? Is that true? Yes, says Mr. Barclay, it's true. But not true literally, true mythologically. So when he comes to explain, he said that... Uh, we don't. He said, do you think that Jesus turned 160 gallons of water into 160 gallons of wine? Do we interpret this literalistic 
He doesn't say literally. He says, uses these pejorative words. No, it's never the right. It's the ultra-right. And it's never literal. It's crudely literal. We interpret this crudely literal so that a man is prejudiced against the literal approach by the use of that pejorative term, crudely literal. Do we believe in the crudely literal? No, says he. We do not intend to take it literal. This is a symbol to teach us that when Jesus comes into the life of a man, he brings joy and peace and blessing. William Barclay says it so beautifully that the average person reads it, and he agrees with that, and passes over the fact that in the process he denies the literal interpretation of turning water into wine. And that's the modern approach to the gospel. What we have, the liberals tell us, in the gospels is not what happened, but what the church thought happened. And in order to make it um, understandable to the modern Greco-Roman world, they adopted certain myths, convenient vehicles which convey to us deeper truth. Take, uh, for example, Aesop's fables. Remember the story of the great and the, and the fox? You remember that story? Fox stood on and saw these great, stood on his. This happens with us about every examination time. Fox stood on his hind feet, tried to reach the great, missed him six inches. Dropped down, tried again, missed him three inches. Dropped down, said, I'll give it one more try. Tried the third time, missed the cluster of grapes by about one inch. So dropped down, walked off, and said, well, they weren't worth it anyway. And that's called sour grapes. That's the origin. They were sour grapes. They weren't worth it anyway. Now, is that story true? What would you say? Yes or no? Yes and no. No, it's not literally true. But yes, it is true as a moral. It tells us a truth that what a man cannot achieve, he tends to denigrate. So a student who's got an A mind, but fools around, makes a C, instead of an A, says, well, it wasn't worth getting an A anyway. What I can achieve, I tend to run down, to denigrate. Sour grapes. So is it true? Yes, it's true as a moral, but not true literally. So when these men come to the New Testament miracles and you ask them, are they true? Is the story of Adam and Eve true? Is it? Well, they say yes, but they don't mean what you and I mean when they say yes. I believe it's true. I believe it's literally true. I believe that Adam was a real man, that Eve was a real man, and that Adam and Eve were seduced and fell into sin. I believe it's true. Well, these men would say they believe it's true also. But it's mythologically true, not literally true. It tells us what happens in the life of every man. Every one of us has our Garden of Eden, where we wrestle with evil. And you and I uh, are Adam, or as Paul Bart said, Adam is every man. Well, we don't believe that. I don't believe that. I believe that Adam was a real man, that he was a real man. I believe that Genesis 3 is literally true, and I believe that John chapter 2 is literally true, and I believe that the virgin birth was literally true, that a virgin literally conceived, and I believe that this miracle, and I believe the miracles in the Bible are literally true, that they actually happened. What is it? Now, we've got a lot of men that oppose miracles today. The deists, Thomas Jefferson opposed them. The atheists opposed them. 
the evolutionists oppose it. There are two basic presuppositions to miracles. One is that there is a personal, sovereign God who is able to interfere the course of nature. And the second presupposition is that man and nature are both in an abnormal state. What do I mean by abnormal? Well, I mean by abnormal that sin has entered this universe. And since sin came to this universe, therefore has come disease. Therefore, it's come death. Therefore, it's come all of the emotional upheavals that ravage our soul and that set brother against brother. So this world is in an abnormal state. And nature is in an abnormal state. You wouldn't have any Mount St. Helena before the fall. You wouldn't have had anything that happened over in Italy before the fall. Nature is in an abnormal state. Man is in an abnormal state. So since nature and man are in an abnormal state, God occasionally has to work abnormally, and that's called miracle. What is a miracle? Miracle is an event in the physical world or in the material world, the external world. Miracle is an event in the physical world effected by the direct and immediate power of God and intended to authenticate a message or a messenger. Now, I've memorized that because I make all my students memorize it. <laughs> what is a miracle? A miracle is an event in the physical world. The virgin birth, the axe head swimming, the event that takes place in the physical world, effected by the direct and immediate activity of God. What do we mean by the direct, immediate activity of God? Well, God sometimes works by secondary causes. When Jesus was born, God worked immediately. He didn't use the secondary cause of conception and gestation and birth. God worked directly and immediately. Gave birth to that human nature of Jesus. One case, God worked two cases, Adam and Eve. And Jesus, God, worked directly and immediately without using secondary causes. How do you, you come into existence? By the use of secondary causes, by the secondary cause of conception. Now, normally, God sustains this world by secondary causes, gravity, conception, food, we eat food, keep alive, so on down the line. God uses secondary causes. Once in a while, God bypasses secondary causes, works immediately and directly. That's called a miracle. Most axe head swims, all that I've ever had, didn't swim. They sank to the bottom. See, that's normal. Gravity. One axe head floated. That's a miracle. Miracles are events in the physical world affected by the immediate and direct activity of God and intended to offer authenticate a message or messenger. The miracles were credentials of prophets. Miracles were credentials of prophets. So God authenticated Moses by miracles. God authenticated Elijah and Elijah by miracles. God authenticated the ministry of uh, of Daniel by miracles, and God authenticated the ministry of Jesus by miracles, and the apostles. They were intended to authenticate a message 
or messenger. And I believe in miracles. I believe that Christianity is supernatural and is paralleled, is associated with miracles. Miracles are also symbols of God's saving activity. As God healed a blind man, so God gives spiritual life. As God fed the 5,000 with physical bread, so God feeds our souls with the bread of life. And so on down the line. These are symbols of God's saving activity. Now, let's, secondly, let's get on to the servant of Peter. Acts chapter 3, 12 to 16. Acts chapter 3, 12 to 16. Here is the second sermon in the book of Acts. Let me see if I can handle that. I don't know whether the heat's broken down or what on this thing. All right, here's the second sermon. The first sermon was in Acts chapter 2. Here is the second sermon of Peter. And it leads to the opposition in Acts chapter 4. Here is the second sermon, and it's addressed to the men of Israel. Acts chapter 12, verse, Acts chapter 4, 3, verse 12. When Peter saw it, he answered the people, You men of Israel. So this sermon is addressed to the men of Israel. This is the gospel for the men of Israel. We wouldn't preach this way today. This is only for a special generation that rejected the offer of the kingdom and crucified Jesus Christ. We wouldn't preach this way today. Now, of course, all men are saved exactly the same way. But here's special circumstance. Here was a generation of men, here was a generation of men that denied Jesus at the trial of Pilate and that were responsible for the death of Jesus. And the question in their mind, no doubt, now is, is there any hope for me? Can I be saved? And Peter answers that question. says, I want that you did it to ignorance. And there is hope if you will repent and turn. So here's a bona fide offer, I believe, once again to the men of Israel. Once again, they rejected it. And we'll see that in chapter 3. Now, there are three things, just as I have on the outline, three things of the sermon. Peter always preached with three points. <laughs> My wife says, I couldn't preach a sermon unless it were in three points. Well, here's Peter's sermon. It's in three points. First, the explanation of the miracle, Acts 3, 12, 18. Secondly, the call to repentance. And third, the appeal to the support of the Old Testament for what he said. First, explanation of the miracle, verses 12 to 18. Let's read it. When Peter saw it, he answered the people, you men of Israel, why? Marvel you at this, that is this, this miracle. Well, why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate uh, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and the desire to murder to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God has raised up from the dead of which we are witnesses. And his name has made this man whole. This, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man whole, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that through ignorance you did it, and did all, as did also your rulers. Those things which God before had shown by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, 
he has so fulfilled. Now, here's the first part of Peter's sermon. It's an explanation of the miracle. I'd like you to observe five things, just as it is in the outline, on this explanation. Number one, the divine origin of this miracle. Chapter 3, verses 13, 12 and 13, the divine origin. Negatively, Paul, Peter says, we are not responsible for this miracle. Positively, God is responsible for this miracle. Here's the explanation, verse 13. The God of Abram and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant. That ought to be servant, not son. Glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. Who is responsible for this miracle? God is responsible for this miracle. God did it to glorify his servant, Jesus. Secondly, the crime of the Jews in this servant, this the crime of the Jews. Peter indicts the Jews on a fourfold indictment, by a fourfold indictment. He indicts them on four things, on four counts. Number one, you delivered up to the Romans Jesus. Verse 13, God of Abrams glorified his son Jesus, who you delivered up. That is, you handed Jesus over to Pilate and to the Romans to be executed. That's the first indictment. Secondly, you refused to acknowledge Jesus as your divinely appointed king and savior, even though Pilate wanted to release him, whom you denied. That is, you denied his messiahship. You denied him as king and savior. You denied him in the presence of Pilate, even when Pilate was determined to let him go. You refused him, denied him, even though Pilate was disposed to release him. Third, you chose a condemned murderer rather than Jesus. Verse 14, you denied the Holy One and the Just One, both titles referring to Jesus, and you desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Who was that murderer? Barabbas. Barabbas. Bar Abbas. Bar is the Aramaic word for son, as B-E-N is the Hebrew word for son. And Abbas means father. So Bar Abbas means son of the father. And I don't think that's by coincidence that the son of the heavenly father took the place of Bar Abbas, the son of the father. It's kind of a play on words, even though that was his real name. And they desired Barabbas, a cutthroat and a murderer, instead of Jesus. And number four, you killed the author, originator of life, verse 15, and killed the prince of life, and God has raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. So Peter indicts his fellow countrymen, the Jews, on four counts. You handed Jesus over to the Romans. You refused to acknowledge him, even though Pilate wanted to let him go. You chose the condemned man rather than, than Jesus. You chose the condemned murderer rather than Jesus. The fourth, you killed the originator, the author of life. Now, that raises a question. Might as well look at it. The question is raised uh, today, uh, ever since Bishop Pike wrote an article for Life magazine, and since the Roman Catholic Church uh, softened its statement that the Jews were, uh, in the 1950s, softened its statement that the Jews were guilty of deicide. Suicide has taken my own life. Fratricide taken the life of a father, matricide taken the life of a mother, 
deicide is killing the God-man, Jesus. The Roman Catholic Church had a little statement about deicide. Bishop Pike wrote it, so did uh, Pike raised this, and so did the B'nai B'rith. Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Did the Jews put Jesus to death? Did the Jews kill Jesus? Well, the answer to that is yes, they did. Matter of fact, there are four parties that are responsible for the death of Jesus, and I'd like you to listen carefully. The four causes to the death of Jesus. Four causes to the death of Jesus. There's, first of all, what I call the human cause, the human cause of the death of Jesus. And the human cause is both the Jews and the Gentiles. All men are responsible for the death of Jesus. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 4, please. Acts chapter 4, verse um, 25. Here's the prayer of after they were interrogated by the Sadducees and let go, here's the prayer of the disciples. Verse 24, when they heard that that, they lifted up their voice to God, one accord said, Lord, thou art God, who hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the nations rage? Nations are Gentiles. And the people, that's the Jews, imagine vain things. The kings of the earth, that's the Gentiles stood up, Pilate and Herod. The kings of the earth stood up. And the rulers, that's the Sanhedrin, that's the Jews. And the rulers are gathered together against the Lord, against his Christ. For the truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, and who else? Who else? The people of who? Israel, the Jews. We're gathered together to do whatever thy hand thy counsel determines for to be done. Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Both Gentiles and Jews. Both Jews and Gentiles put Jesus twice to death. The Jews put him to death because they charged him before the Sanhedrin. The Gentiles also put him to death because he was tried before Herod and he was tried before Pilate and the Roman soldiers nailed him to the cross. So when it comes to the death of Jesus, the blame can't be put on the Jews alone, put on the Gentiles as well. Both Jews and Gentiles put Jesus to death. Secondly, that's the human cause. Secondly, there's what I call the demoniac cause. That is, the devil put Jesus to death. The devil prompted Judas to betray him. The devil was behind Pilate trying him. The devil was behind the Sanhedrin accusing him. That's the demoniac words in Genesis 3, 15 address the devil. God said to the devil, I will put enmity between thee and thy seed, between thee and the woman, and between thy seed, the seed of the devil, and the seed of the woman. It, or he, the seed of the woman, shall crush your head, and thou, Satan, shall crush his heel. Why did the devil crush the heel of Jesus? And where did Jesus crush the head of the devil? Well, you listen to the broadcast. And you get, well, you know, obviously, uh, the question of heal is an injury from which you can recover. And a man gets his heel crushed, he can recover from that. man gets his head crushed, unless he's got a real tough head. And uh, got a real strong head, why, he won't recover from that. Why did the devil 
clutch the heel of Jesus at the cross. Where did Jesus clutch the head of devil? Three places. He was sentenced at the cross. Second, he will be incarcerated for a thousand years during the millennium. And Revelation chapter 12, 20, verse 10, he will be eventually cast into the lake of fire where he will be judged forever and forever. Thus, God will clutch the head of Satan, the devil. Now, you know, we get Satan, of course, you know, as a fallen angel. I'm not going to get into this. But, you know, there are two orders of being. Two orders of B-E-I-N-G. There are two orders of personal beings that God made. The first order of personal beings are angels. Angels are just like you and me, except they don't have a body. They have minds, they have wills, they have emotions. They're located somewhere in space. They're not omnipresent. The middle-aged theologians used to say they were definitively in space. They're here and not there, or they're not there. They're there, not here. Angels are definitively in space. The only difference is they don't have a body. They're just like Peter is today. Peter is in heaven today, but he doesn't have a body. But although he doesn't have a body, he has a mind, he thinks. He doesn't have a brain, but he has a mind. When I die, the brain's going to go into the ground, but the mind will go into the presence of God. He has a mind and a will and emotions and a conscience, all of that. Angels have all of that. They are personal beings. The only difference is that they don't have and will not have a body, and man does have and will ultimately have a body. And so angels are real, personal beings. Now, how did we get off on this? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but what he's, I'm talking about was it was demoniac cause that the devil prompted them to put Jesus to death. Third, first the human cause. Second, the demoniac cause. The demoniac cause, the devil. Third, there's a third cause. And that is what I call the moral cause. The moral cause is your sins and my sins. Your sins and my sins put Jesus to death. He died for our sins, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So your sins, my sins, put him away. There's an old spiritual that goes, you've heard it. Were you there when they crucified my Lord. Well, what is the answer to that question? Were you there? The answer is yes. Yes, I was there. It's my sins and your sins that put Jesus Christ to death. He died for our sins. That's the moral cause of the death of Jesus. Fourth, there's the divine cause. And that's what counts. And the divine cause is that God put his son to death. That God laid upon Jesus our iniquity that he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He must always distinguish between the crucifixion and the atonement. We are not saved by the crucifixion. We're saved by the atonement. We're not saved by what men did to Jesus. We're saved by what God did to Jesus. What men did to Jesus is number one, the human cause. What God did to Jesus is number three and number four. He put him to death, and he put him to death for our sins. And I'm not saved by the nails in his hands. 
and I'm not saved by the crown of thorns on his head. This is what the artist makes much of, but I'm not saved by what the artist makes much of. I'm saved by what God did to Jesus. I'm not saved by the, the nail prints in his hand and the sword in his side. Those are symbols. They happen, but they're pictures of the deeper things. I'm saved by what transpired between God the Father and God the Son in those three hours of darkness, in which time Jesus bore all the hells of all men. That's what saves me. And uh, the last analysis, what is important, is that Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, voluntarily suffered at the hands of God the Judge. What he himself had sentenced us to. The same one that judged us also saved us. The one that sentenced us to die, the one that said in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, the one that sentenced me to death is precisely the one that bore that sentence at Calvary. God the judge is God the Savior. And what counts, my friends, and the death of Jesus is what God did to his son. I'm not saved by what man did to Jesus. Am I coming across? See, I'm not saved by what man did to Jesus. I am saved by what God did to Jesus. I'm saved by that event in which Jesus Christ, the infinite God, bore all the punishment due you and me. And that's the divine cause of the death of Jesus. Who put Jesus to death? Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Man is. The devil is. Your sins are. And ultimately God is. He put upon Jesus Christ the iniquity of us all. Then notice third, the vindication of Jesus by God, verse 15. Acts chapter 3, verse 15. The vindication of Jesus by God says you killed the prince of life whom God raised raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Now, I want to say something here, since we're only going to get down to verse 18, and I'm now committed to that. I want to say something. <clears throat> There's a difference between the resurrection of Jesus and God raised his son. There's a very great difference. See, a man isn't saved by the resurrection. He's saved by the fact that God raised his son. You remember what it says in Romans chapter 9, 10, verses 9 and 10? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that, what? God raised him from the dead. Not simply that Jesus Christ arose, but that God raised him from the dead. And that means a lot more than that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I surely believe that Jesus arose from the dead. I believe that. But that isn't what Paul said, and that isn't what this statement said. This statement, and what Paul said and elsewhere, is that God raised Jesus from the dead. See, Lazarus rose from the dead, but that doesn't save him. Others have been raised from the dead. That doesn't save him. In the future, other men will be raised from the dead. That doesn't save him. What saves me is not simply that Jesus arose from the dead. What saves me is that God raised Jesus from the dead. And the New Testament, God raised Jesus from the dead 
to indicate to us, to prove to us, that what Jesus did with our sins, God perfectly accepted. The resurrection of Jesus, as Russell Bradley Jones once said, and I've never forgotten, read it about 30 years ago, the resurrection of Jesus is God's amen to Christ. It is finished. Jesus hung upon the cross. The sixth word from the cross is to telestai. It is finished. One word in the Greek, three in the King James. It is finished. That word to telestai was a common word in the days of Jesus and Paul. When a man went down to a store and bought something and paid in full for what he bought, they used a stamp. On that stamp was to telestai. And they found, the archaeologists have found several, several of these uh, sort of things. To tell the side, paid in full, no debt, paid in full, no loan, paid in full, to tell the side. So Jesus, so to speak, walked up to the counter of God at Calvary, picked up all your debt and all my debt, picked up all the IOU of Adam and Abraham and the last sinner that will ever live picked up all those IOUs, all those debts, paid for them in full by his atoning death at the cross. And when he did so, he said, it is finished. What Jesus did to save you, he did before he died physically. He said, it is finished, not after his physical death, but before his physical death. It is finished. The work of redemption is finished. The work necessary to save men is finished. And he bore in his own body on the cross my sin. And he suffered the just wrath of God. But when he suffered the just wrath of God, died, he said, it is finished, paid in full. Now, the question arises, did God accept that payment? Did God accept that payment? Are my sins truly gone? Did Jesus Christ perfectly satisfy the justice of God in his death. Well, God said yes. And the way he said yes, I accept it, is by raising his son from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus is God's amen to Christ in his finished. And the resurrection of Jesus is God's authentication of Jesus' work at the cross. And that's why, my friend, and I hope you're listening, that's why we don't, we don't simply believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I do believe that, but not simply that. We believe more than that. We believe that God raised Jesus. And by so raising Jesus, God was authenticated. Now, are you ever troubled by your sin? Are you ever troubled by your past sin? Does it ever come to your mind that perhaps, perhaps, your sin is so terrible, so gross. Well, you say, I never committed murder. No, but if you were proud, that's a gross sin. God hates six things, yea, seven. Proverbs 6. One of them is he that sows discontent among the brethren. One of them, three of those seven, are pride. God hates pride. You know, for every one man that's been kept out of the kingdom of God, by whiskey or adultery. A hundred men have been kept out by pride. God hates pride. 
and I'm guilty of the worst sin. Now, will God take care of my sin? Has the death of Jesus really taken care of my sin? Is the sin question still settled? Maybe I'm troubled by that. You know the antidote to that? To look back to the empty tomb. Don't look to feelings. Look back to the empty tomb. Because God, by that empty tomb, said, I am perfectly satisfied with what Jesus Christ did for your sin at the cross. The resurrection of Jesus is God's amen to Christ. It is finished. Now, you know, sometimes you say, I wish I had said that. <laughs> I wish I would said that. I didn't. I might say, well, I did say it. I might have just lifted the cross on you and said, one day I thought about this. But you might get hold of that book sometime and read it. And that's always a disconcerting thing, isn't it? You hear some preachers say a beautiful thing. Say, man, that's beautiful. He really thought of something there. And then about a month later, you read it in the book. So I didn't say that. Russell Bradley Jones said it. But I think it's beautiful. The resurrection of Jesus is God's amen to Christ in his sin. God raised his son. So that Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that is thou shalt believe with thy, uh, that is thou shalt believe in thine heart, thy mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, now that doesn't mean Lord of my life. That means that Jesus Christ is God. Thou shalt confess that Jesus Christ is the Jehovah of the Old Testament God. And thou shalt believe in thine heart that what? God raised him from the dead. That God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus for my sin. If you believe that, then thou shalt be saved. God vindicated. Number four, the real explanation of the cause of the miracle. Acts 3.16. So number four, the real explanation of the cause of the miracle. Verse 16. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man whole, whom you see and know. Now let me translate that. That's a little difficult. His name has made strong. See, the subject is his name with a capital M. His name has made this man, through faith in his name, strong and whole. His name has made strong, through faith in his name, this one whom you see and know. And this faith, which is through him, gave to him the wholeness which is before you all. Now, the word N-A-M-E ought to be with a capital N. In the Bible, the word N-A-M-E refers to all that a person is. So we, we say, and Jesus said in John 14, 16, 24, Hitherto you've asked nothing in my name. Ask in my name, and you shall receive. Up to the time of Jesus, nobody in the Old Testament said, ended their prayer by saying, in the name of Jesus. How do we end our prayers today? By saying, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, what do we mean by, in the name of Jesus Christ? We don't simply mean that that's sort of a, um, Aladdin's lamp that we can rub. We just say the word, in the name, and it acts, you know, miraculously. No, no. When the word name is used, it means in all that Jesus is and does. That's the meaning of the Hebraic emphasis of the word N-A-M-E. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we read, There is salvation in none other, for there is none other name given under heaven, whereby we must be saved. We are saved by the name Jesus. 
Does that mean that if I simply repeat the name Jesus, that God saves me? No. The word name means all that Jesus is and all that he does. All that he is in his infinite dignity and all that he did at the cross. Now that's the fourth in verse 16. What he says, verse 16, and his name, the name of Jesus, his name, all that he is, has made this man whole. Yet, his name made him whole through that man doing something. What did that man have to do, verse 16? Through faith in his name. That was his part. His name, that is Jesus, his name, Jesus, made this man whole. But it was he made him whole through faith on the part of that man in his name giving him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. You know, Plato once, or wasn't Aristotle, once said that there are four causes, at least three. Let's look at this, it'll be through. Plato, Aristotle, called them efficient cause, an instrumental cause, and a final cause. And he had one other. But there are three causes here. What caused the miracle? Three causes. The efficient cause, what did it, is the name of Jesus. That is the person of Jesus. He did it. The instrumental cause is faith on the part of the man. And the final cause was to glorify the name of Jesus. Let us say that, um, let us say that I'm going to write something on this, uh, uh, on this overhead. Let me say, I write, will you please... Wake up. <laughs> Will you please wake up? Now, what is the cause of that statement? Will you please wake up? Who wrote that? Who wrote that? Did I write it? Or did the pen write it? Who wrote it? Well, <clears throat> I put the pen up there and stand here for five minutes, which I'm not, and that pen won't write, Will you please wake up? See, the pen wrote it, and it didn't write it. And I can stand up here without a pen, run my finger over that for five minutes, and nothing will show up. So I wrote it, and yet I didn't write it. Both the pen wrote it, and I wrote it. And I wrote it so that you would read it and wake up. See? Now, that means that in the writing of that statement, will you please wake up? There are three causes. There is the efficient cause, the one that did it the one that's responsible for it, the efficient cause. And that efficient cause is myself, the person. Secondly, I use something. That's the instrumental cause. I use the pen, the instrumental cause. And the final cause, the reason why I did it, the final cause, the aim of it, is that you might read it and wake up. So in this miracle, the efficient cause was the name of Jesus. All that he is. The instrumental cause was faith. That was the hand that received it. And the final cause was to bring glory to Jesus. Now translate that over into your salvation. Why, how were you saved? What is the cause behind your salvation? Well, the originating cause, add a fourth one, is God. What is the efficient cause of your salvation? What is it? The blood of Jesus Christ. You are saved on the ground of the blood of Jesus. Not on the ground of faith. The blood of Jesus is the efficient cause. It is that which saves and justifies you and me. 
What is the what is the instrumental cause of your salvation? Faith. Faith is the instrument which receives that salvation that the blood of Christ purchased. What is final cause of my salvation? God's glory. God's glory. To demonstrate the glory of God. So in my salvation, as in this miracle, there is an efficient cause, God. There's an instrumental cause, faith. And there's a final cause, which is the glory of God. Now we'll pick up at this point next time. Father, seal to our hearts what we've looked at this morning. Thank thee for this great story. We thank thee that Christianity is miraculous. The miracles are the indicia of thy presence in this world. We know that thou art pleased most times to, to take care of this world by secondary causes, by gravity and by conception, by study, by work. Other times, thou art pleased to work directly and immediately, miraculously. We thank thee, O God, that thou art a miracle-working God. Thank thee that thou didst work the great miracles, the incarnation, the virgin birth, the death of Jesus, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus in heaven, and the great miracle of his second coming. We thank thee that our faith is altogether and wholly miraculous. Help us never to be embarrassed by the miracles of the Bible. If we believe that God is a sovereign God, then surely he's able to perform miracles. And we thank you for the greatest of all in some respects, and that is the miracle of the transformation of a regenerated soul. We thank you for the miracle of regeneration. Help us to walk as men who've been raised to newness of life in Jesus Christ. And help us like this man who was restored to health and leaped and praised God and was an evidence of the work of God in his life. Help each one of us to praise thee and to serve thee and by so doing the evidence to others that God has moved in our souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>